Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss The Green Hornet. Okay, I am Sebastian and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And welcoming to the podcast, we have a new special guest, Matt Anderson. Woo! Hi guys, thank you for having me. We are super excited to have you on the podcast because we are discussing The Green Hornet, the 2011 film by Michelle Gondry and written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And Matt is a listener and he reached out to us with a lot of enthusiasm to discuss the Green Hornet, (laughs) which there weren't a ton of people lining up to do. So we thought who better to have on this episode. Matt is a comic book writer who lives in Illinois. Matt, do you want to plug a comic or tell our audience about something you worked on? Yeah, so projects I've worked on, the most similar one that I can think of is I wrote Shrek for a little while. That's green. Yeah, totally. I <laughs> yeah. know. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I also uh, wrote uh, uh, Kung Fu Panda comics for two years. Done Richie Rich, Casper, a bunch of the kids' properties. Um, but right now I'm working on something that's called The Mighty Peculiar. And it's um, there's a comic from DC called Ambush Bug, which is about a character that knows all that he's in a superhero universe. And he... Um, decides to use all of the nonsense, fourth wall breaking and whatever to just wreak havoc. Well, I decided to lift that and then do that about conspiracy theories and uh, disinformation. <laughs> so there is a, and then weirdly enough, I'm writing it with a former congressman, part of the January 6th commission, this guy named wow. Denver Riggleman. So a Republican former congressman who is a military veteran and I are writing about a fictionalized version of him and his Sasquatch companion debunking QAnon and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think we're going to do it as like uh, almost like a, a comic strip for a little while. So in a, probably about a month from this recording. So I'm, I'm going to say late spring, you'll be able to get The Mighty Peculiar for free a couple times a week. And uh, if you uh, 
don't like conspiracy theories, or if you like conspiracy theories but hate the fact that we are living in times where they seem to be really powerful, you'll want to read that. That sounds really cool. Super cool. Let's talk about a different conspiracy theory, and that <laughs> is the film The Green Hornet, uh, as released in 2011. Now, Matt, you are a Green Hornet fan, would you say? I am. I am a super fan of The Green Hornet, actually. Like, embarrassingly, but unapologetically. How about that? Um, <laughs> I think I even in my email reaching out to you about doing this movie is I, I swear I was going to remember this, that like I referred to myself as a Green Hornet fan, um, super fan. And even though something like that shouldn't exist because inexplicably, I'm a big fan of this character. That's how I refer to it, because there's nothing to this character. Right. They never bothered to give him. I mean, like this movie does more heavy lifting in terms of who he is despite the fact that he's been around since 1936 he's just a blank slate literally a guy in a mask and so it almost seems weird to be a fan of that character it's like being a fan of vanilla ice cream right like you you like it but is anyone ever going to go like you try the vanilla no, no one's ever said that like so i feel like that's like green hornets like how do you recommend green hornet to someone they'd be like yeah i like paper as well it's useful i like you know <laughs> like it's just it's there let me ask you this how did you come to being a green hornet fan like what was the media that brought you to the character old time radio um because when I was eight years old, I was also 80. And that's like a joke I make now. Like I made that as a joke once. And then it kind of became that joke. I'm like, oh, that's how I'm going to describe like my taste in anything. Like I just have the taste of an elderly person. But then I realized I'm like, it's not really a joke because how I got into it is um, when I was nine years old, it was my ninth birthday. My aunt and uncle gave me a birthday present, which was a cassette collection of old time radio mysteries. I know I'd never at that nine years old, I didn't know old time radio was like a song I hadn't heard in two months. Like, that's not like, I didn't know there was shows. Like I was not a radio fan. How about that? So why they got this for me, clearly they knew somehow that like, oh yeah, Matt, like he's an old person. Uh -huh. So he'll, he'll <laughs> love old time radio. And um, it's funny because and I'm so brokenhearted that like, I can't find the because um, I knew there you guys do this through Zoom and, you know, I'll see people holding stuff up every now and then. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't find the Green Hornet one, but I do have a cassette of Sherlock Holmes. Nice. From, this is from that set. So it was the Golden Age Radio Mystery. There was uh, Sherlock Holmes. Many Lives of Harry Lime, which was the Orson Welles taking a bunch of money to continue his third man character so he could make Macbeth. Right. You know, he's like just <laughs> doing crazy like B-movie spy radio with the third man, the classic Harry Lime. Uh, so that was on there, which again, as nine years old, man, the further adventures of Harry Lime or the... <laughs> prequel i guess so all the things he did before the third man what nine-year-old doesn't want to <laughs> listen to that i memorized those episodes i knew those before i even knew what the third man was i saw the third man like you know later in high school i worked at a video store so you know i was doing the classic like just you get free rentals and i was never a snob but i kind of aspired to be a snob so I'd, I'd rent like important movies and Gremlins too, like, and you know, Gremlins <laughs> would always get watched first. 
And then I'd watch half it. And so I got Third Man and I'm like, man, this music sounds really familiar. And then there was a couple other things, but The Green Hornet was one of them. It had uh, two episodes. Uh, One was called What Price Beauty, which scared me as a kid. It is honestly Joker's plan in the 89 Batman movie. It's poison cosmetics that like Scar. And the other one was um, The Highway That Graft Built, which is great because you know you're in good hands when like, graft is the main like thing that you're fighting right which again <laughs> at nine years old i was all about graft you know i had no way of knowing i thought for the longest time this guy's name was brick right it's brit reed so i'm like brick that's weird why is this guy named brick reed and i i knew it i i, I called him that for so long that i may even like sometimes accidentally still say like brick reed we'll forgive you Thank you. Yes, I know that. Well, there's someone out there. I no, there's not. Actually. No one's gonna call me on that. But it's funny though because, like, I actually I, I realized this today. Like, the most successful incarnation of this is the one I know the least about, which is that t- the TV show. Like, I I mean, I've I've seen it, but like the radio show, I know everything about every existing episode that still remains. I've listened to, and then I know a lot of the comics, and then I know the stuff. That came after the TV show. The TV show of what you're referring to uh, famously starred Bruce Lee in the Cato role. And I think at this point, that's primarily what the TV show is known for. I did see the TV show on occasion as a kid because they would sometimes do the reruns alongside the old Batman show, which was obviously very kind of closely tied to in sort of tone. Same narrator. Well, same everything, basically, except that was the weird thing, because they did end up playing the Green Hornet show a little more straight. I mean, it wasn't campy. And I mean, it's campy, but like not it's not ratchet up like Batman level. And they made them kind of exist in the same. You know, they had the little cameos and stuff like that. So it's weird that they didn't just try and match the total tone and go with the bam and pow and all. Batman was the successful thing that they were trying to emulate. And then they bring up this other character and then don't do the things that made that other show successful. <laughs> I don't know. It's seemed like a really weird choice. I remember when they had that Batman green Hornet crossover and it totally blew my mind where they popped out the windows. Yeah. The, yeah. Yep. It was like, they're in the same world. It was like the first time <laughs> of like the Marvel yeah. cinematic universe or whatever. It's like, wow. And honestly, that's kind of some, I mean, it's weird. And this is, goes back to my super fandom but like green hornet is kind of almost quietly maybe the inventor of that when it comes to like more comic book characters even though he only became a comic book character later but i feel like they tried to do you know that saying like lightning doesn't strike twice well i feel like if you copy lightning enough it may not strike twice but you just caught you made a copy of lightning because that's green hornet is just a copy of the lone ranger you know down to everything they they literally did you know what do you know about the lone ranger and then they just found a corresponding thing for green hornet and then that that's it so in a way they were almost the first shared universe too because they weren't created to be together it just became kind of like since the same people created them and they just copied themselves so yeah, it's weird that they did that on radio quietly and then it's a big deal on TV and 
now, I mean, you can't find anything that isn't somehow connected to something else. Jen, you didn't really have any familiarity with the Green Hornet character beforehand, did you? None. Were you even aware of the TV show? I only was aware of the TV show because we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. And you and you were referencing that's when uh, Brad Pitt and, and Bruce Lee get into the fight on set. It was yes. for that show. That was my only touch point for that. I'm, I'm completely unaware of I mean I know it by name I did not know that it was a radio show to begin with I was asking Sebastian I was like is he like is he in the DC or Marvel Universe and he's like nope that would make him interesting now (laughs) (laughs) so yeah no knowledge of the Green Hornet prior to the 2011 film for me so much like any 16 to 17 year old in high school so in 97 uh AOL days although I didn't have it yet so that's where we're at I feel like that always is kind of a good like it's dial up and not every house had it so you kind of know exactly where we are like my movie knowledge is coming from like uh Cinescape magazine yeah was that the sci-fi like Mm kind of one but yeah it was like that in Fangoria you know it's like that's where my movie knowledge is coming from so like right around Batman and Robin time George Clooney was actually hovering around the Green Hornet first. Yes, he was. And did not pursue it to go be Batman because he probably was like, well, I'm already going to do half of the stuff, but at least people know this other character. So, (laughs) you know, but I was enamored with the idea of George Clooney as like, I mean, he was younger at the time, but like definitely older than the character that we're going to see in the movie and in a lot of uh, variations. And I was like, I love the, the idea of a guy that knows that like he's boring. And so like any kid, I started writing a screenplay now. Uh-huh. I, did, I did not have a computer or I had a computer, but like the word processing was like word perfect, which is everyone's nightmare that had to learn word processing. And oh, word I'm perfect. familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So in with screenplays, like I, um, I only knew what they looked like because I would go to combo conventions and they would have the people that would sell like the ones that were literally like, they looked like production copies, but they were probably just Xeroxed somewhere. And I had a copy of, before the movie came out of the screenplay of Batman and Robin by Akiva Goldsman. Wow. Ooh, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I've made lots of um, smart purchases <laughs> in my life. Um, so I, I, I learned screenplay format from that from a copy of a movie that's coming out in a couple months of Batman and Robin. I mean, I wonder how that script read. Um, I will tell you this. The script is better than the movie, but it's worse in a lot of ways too, because Joel Schumacher flawed as he may be at least knew what movie he was making. Whereas I feel like on the page, like it would go from uh, something that was kind of grim to the first, instead of ice puns, the first, um, like joke that Mr. Freeze says in the opening scene is uh, he like smashes two cops together and he says cop suey. Oh geez. <laughs> and you're like, okay, it's not even like, at least like the ice ones suddenly that like what killed the dinosaurs, the ice age line looks amazing. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could have been cop suey. It could have been cop suey. Um, I'm just going to call back to every episode that you've got, <laughs> every movie you've covered. Like that's, so we've got Batman and Robin. Don't worry. I've got Lone <laughs> Ranger coming up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so I, on a typewriter, 
I am trying to format a screenplay, which, you know, is like move the thing. And it's uh-huh. like, okay, how do I center the dialogue? Um, so I never wrote the script. I wrote one page of a Green Hornet script when I was 16. And um, I wanted it to be self-aware. And Austin Powers was huge mm-hmm. at the time. And this is now the we're entering the part of the story where uh, my wife gave me a very skeptical look and <laughs> tried to tell me. She phrased it as a question, to be fair. But she she's like, don't tell the story. <laughs> So because Austin Powers is like the big thing and self-aware and all that, I was like, I'm going to have in my Green Hornet um, movie, in every fight scene, he's going to try out like a new like battle cry because he doesn't have one. He doesn't have his high O silver. So one of them, and I, I stress that I, as embarrassing as this is, I had the restraint to only use it once. I was going to have him say, do I make you hornady, baby? <laughs> Now, the movie was never made. Um, so now I'm also thinking, maybe if this goes well, maybe I should do a podcast about the Green Hornet and it'll just be called Do I Make the Hornet? <laughs> I like that you were imagining George Clooney saying this, too. Yes. But doesn't it kind of work, though? <laughs> because he's not going to do it as... Like, do I make you Hornady? Right. He's not going to do it like Mike Myers. <laughs> As telling as it is, I thought it was hilarious at the time, and I never bothered to come up with, like, well, what would his next one be? So, like, my story that, like, he was only going to use it once kind of sounds like a really weak cover, but it's not. He was definitely going to say more, but, I mean, come on. Nothing else can top Do I Make You Hornady. Yeah. Nailed it. I, I mean, I feel like I almost, like, uh, maybe, like, manifested Seth Rogen. Like, in that moment, like, when I was 16... 10 years later, that guy would get hired to write. And I, you know, maybe there was something, some kind of wings of a butterfly type thing where I made it happen. Hey, for all we know, there's an outtake of him saying that after doing like miles and miles of improv, which I'm sure they did on this movie. Oh, God, yeah. Well, let's get into the movie. Now, as you've sort of uh, implied, this movie was in development forever like they had been developing this thing since the early 90s so coming off of the you know original tim burton batman movies they were already thinking green hornet they must not have felt they had many characters available to them we got the phantom and the shadow yeah which will be covered eventually here on tentpole trauma and i do feel like with this movie, even though it's a little bit later, I feel like that is like an unofficial trilogy, in my opinion. Yeah, I can see that. I saw both of those in the theater on opening day. Phantom, uh, I also saw again the next day. Dude, you are hardcore. I just like slamming evil. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I still don't know what the shadow knows. Like I I, I went and saw it, and I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm still trying to work. Genghis that Khan out too. is bad. Like I got that. Like from that movie. I kind of knew that before, though. Oh well. I I think so. I like to think I did. Clearly, the raging successes that was the Phantom <laughs> and the Shadow made the Green Hornet so inevitable. Yes. But the craziest thing about this, aside from the fact that it's directed by Michelle Gondry and starring Seth Rogen from a screenplay he wrote with his comedy writing partner, Evan Goldberg, is the fact that Michelle Gondry was attached to this thing way before. Yeah. Like, they were hoping this was going to be his film debut going from making uh, videos to this. This was going to be the first feature film he made. What a weird world that would be. I only 
learned that part recently. Like what I knew about the first kind of incarnation of the Green Hornet being people trying to get it off the ground was the George Clooney aspect. When I found out like the other day that, yeah, he was kind of the first director attached, it blew my mind because suddenly this movie didn't seem like the weird thing that he took that's inexplicable in his career. It didn't like all of those things that made me feel like, okay, it's easy to kind of reject this movie outright because how crazy of a choice he was Mm -hmm. and that like, Oh, he's clearly taking it for like a paycheck or it felt like there was like a big asterisk on like him directing this movie. Like, but knowing that he'd circled around it before kind of makes it, I don't know if it gave a weird legitimacy that I was not, I didn't know I was missing, (laughs) but uh, this was definitely not just like a paycheck for him. Dude wanted to make a green Hornet movie. (laughs) I mean, I am a fan of Michelle Gondry's work. I really love eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It's one of my favorite movies from the two thousands I definitely was sort of scratching my head when I found out he directed this. Um, Jen, do you have any sort of familiarity with Michelle Gondry? I also like Eternal. Um... You never, I never say it right. I, I called it Eternal Little Mrs. Sunshine. Little Mrs. Sunshine. <laughs> no, I know. Which, I'm like, it's... which then I was like, that's a that's a pitch right there. <laughs> Quite a mashup there. <laughs> but I'm I'm pretty good at that. No, but he did. He, uh, yeah, and there was something else that he did. That Be I kind, really rewind. That was him, right? Yeah. Yep. Let's talk about the green hornet in the room, which is Seth Rogen, a really odd uh, choice for this character, even considering, like you said, the green hornet is kind of a blank slate of a character. This seems like a very obvious choice to sort of graft a known and popular at the time personality onto this sort of blank slate character, hoping that it'll work as a starring vehicle for him. Yeah, or even to try and do some kind of up-and-coming action star, even if it's not necessarily a known person. Seth Rogen is, I don't know how far down like the list you would have to get of names that you would be like, okay, we're just blue sky in it. Like, who should be green? I, I don't know where Seth Rogen should have been on that list, you know, but it's way down. Like, you would think Mark Wahlberg, I think, was someone that they had yep. talked about before. Yep. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal also was on Yes, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that was Kevin Smith's guy, yep. you know. Yep. If you listen to a lot of old-time radio, you start getting really skewed on people's ages um, because uh, there'll be, like, a... a show and they'll be like oh there's the old spinster and she'll talk like that you know like yeah like that and then it'll be like she's 44 and you're like wait a minute hold on <laughs> like that's wait a minute so like you know in the in the radio show brit is probably yeah he's the publisher he owns uh through inheritance a newspaper and he's got a voice that sounds like he's 40 but then it's like he's supposed to be 22 you can always think that like he is Portrayed by yeah, an actor that would be in his early 20s, you know, and can kind of have some gravitas and then 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 Seth Rogen. Jen, how did you feel about Seth Rogen, the actor? Um, I'm a fan. I've like I love Freaks and Geeks. That was, you know, the first exposure I had to him. And I, I just love his character, Ken. He's just yep. great. And um, his, his first line of dialogue, I think, the I've got a ton of mushrooms and I'm going to eat them <laughs> is one of the best delivered. I think that I think that's his first in the pilot. Like and I and in that moment, I was like, I love this guy. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like 
he might be really annoying, but I'm gonna love this guy. Like, because if you can if you can deliver that line, deadpan yet it just sold. So yeah, no, he's he's great, and I love throughout the you know the one season that we got of yeah. Freaks and Geeks. Um, I really love his like character. Yeah, and like the whole thing with when he had the girlfriend and went through mm-hmm. all of that, and just it was anyway. So I I was thinking about him today, and I was like, I think I pretty much have seen every film that he's been in in the in the theater i really have like i mean even like zach and mary make a porno yeah. um, you know knocked up the um, 40 year old virgin i mean that he's been in we saw this is the end like i was a uh, pineapple express like i was just going down yeah. this filmography and i was like anything he's kind of been involved in i've i've seen except i didn't see the green hornet i don't even remember i like so don't even remember this movie coming out at all so yeah how do i feel about him as the green hornet he's fine i just i feel like he um works better like kind of in an ensemble so this was just a lot of this is a lot of seth rogan you know judd apatow said something the effect of like the entire premise and pitch of for knocked up was a picture of seth rogan and the can you imagine if this is the guy that got you pregnant? Right. And I feel like that's almost like what this movie is like. Can you imagine Seth right. Rogen as a hero? And it's like, that's a, that's a crazy career to have is like be like the guy that they cast as like the unlikely version of whatever movie he's in. So the unlikely romantic leading man. Okay. Now the unlikely superhero. It's like, that's, that's good work if you can get it though. And I mean, I think that in this case, because the Green Hornet was not a character that people had a lot of preconceived notions. Right. If you exactly. kind of do, I don't know, it's like leaning on a spoof type of thing like this is, it's not necessarily a bad choice to go with a comedian as your lead. And it's funny because it's another one of those situations where you kind of wonder where, I mean, where that first conversation was like, I, I guess it probably made sense to some degree. Like Kevin Smith was, you know, attached to write and direct a completely different version. And I don't know if that maybe opened up the producer's eyes or to like, okay, let's keep like a, some of this more of uh, a comedian, you know, attached to this, because I don't know where you go. Like, let's go to Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Pineapple Express was out. So, I mean, I mean, maybe go to them as writers. Okay. Yeah. We want to do something that's kind of fun. Um, and, Pineapple Express so showed that they could reasonably write like an action movie, but yeah, that it seemed like the the deals right from the start to star and co-write, and it's like that's a it's a bold choice. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you're on to something there. And interestingly, another film that we're going to talk about eventually here, Green Lantern, which came <laughs> out this same year. That in development, I don't know if you remember, but there was a point where Jack Black was going to be Green Lantern. Yep. Oh, yeah. The Robert Smigel. Yep. Oh, that. And if you've ever read that draft, because it's, you know, easy to find. Yeah, that's rough. And I I don't think you could you won't get people crying foul like that. Like, oh, this is just completely disrespecting the character. It's like you're not going to piss off the diehards. No, you didn't piss me off. I think I'm I'm like the, the, the living representative of it. I don't know. I feel like I I am like the president of some kind of club, <laughs> but I just don't know. I was going to say, I, I feel like, Matt, you'd be the only person that would be allowed to have a problem. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry. It's, I, I, would, I would be for sure the like, 
uh, you know, I'm not only um, a, a member, but I'm also the president. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to regrow hair, but like, uh, but I mean, I got to really try and grow that interest in the Green Hornet. Well, let me ask you this. So when this came out in 2011, were you there like opening day? Nope. I didn't see this in the theater. Wow. <laughs> now, okay. So to be fair, I was very aware of it. I, 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 I liked the trailers and, 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 um, so I was, it wasn't like a, oh, bad press and skeptical of troubled production or anything like that. It was, um, let's see, my son was my first, I have two boys and he was like a, just like year old when it came out. And I, there's a weird point in parenting where it's like, you're consumed with it. And then like the baby kind of does its thing and you just kind of have to monitor it. <laughs> And then, like, it gets consuming again when, like, it's mobile. <laughs> like, yeah. when, when you when you put the kid down and he stays, you're like, okay, good. But then put him down and he's off. Like, so I never could justify the time to go to the theater. That was my real reason. But the other thing is, uh, so at the time, the Kevin Smith's version of this, uh, of the Green Hornet, finally did come out as a comic book series. And what they did was they did 12 issues, which just adapted his screenplay. So you do get to see like what the Kevin Smith movie would have been. And then they were continuing it after. So with issue 13 forward, there was, they were going to do new stories. And I had a chance to pitch a three issue green Hornet series, but it had to be set in the Kevin Smith version which is very different. Uh, it's very similar in some ways and, and very different. And so I, I, I got like, I kind of locked up and I was like, Oh wait, no, I can't go see the Seth Rogen one because I'm now trying to pitch and hopefully we'll get the job to write this three part story. I didn't want to be uh, writing like both of those versions. So I was afraid one was going to um, interfere with the other. So I did not see it. When did you eventually get around to seeing it? it? Right when it came to DVD. It might be one of the last DVDs that I've, I actually like walked into a store to buy. Like knowing, like I, I went to Best Buy on the Tuesday it came out because I didn't get the job to write the three. I, I so had it not had it done better and was still like in the theater, I'm sure I probably I might have even tried to to go out and see it. But yeah, no, um, I made amends for my. Uh, laps in um, Green Hornet <laughs> fandom by going to Best Buy the day it came out and bought the DVD, which they had no idea where it was. It, it wasn't it wasn't on a display like it, it was it was already it was already spying out on the shelf. And I was like, oh, man, like that. That's rough. Like usually, you know, even like the newest Air Bud gets a little bit of, <laughs> you know, uh, a front facing display. Yeah. I was like, no wonder I couldn't find it. It's filed like a catalog thing and it's supposed to be so i should have looked up the date that it came out on dvd because that's really it's opening night in my heart you know? <laughs> although it was opening afternoon because i was like no one's gonna want to watch this with me so like it was a tuesday at probably like eleven thirty a.m that's probably around the time i watched it too because i first <laughs> saw it uh when it came out on dvd and i think i red boxed it which was pretty rare for me that put me out of work that's about my, my that my tragic like the machine took my job was the machine uh closed my video store so oh. I, I i i hate every red box i hate them too but in this case i was desperate i was desperate to see this movie wait wait so you actually like you went to a red box 
to look for this movie or it was just like what you settled on when like your first four choices were <laughs> already checked out. I think I actually knew it was coming out and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch that Green Hornet because I mean, I'm a superhero fan yeah. and I like the Phantom in the Shadow and I actually listened to a bunch of Shadow radio plays, not when I was a kid, but when I was an adult, I got sort of retro into them. Who would listen to those as, as like an eight-year-old? Jen, I know you didn't see this until the other night, right? No. This completely came and went. I was aware that the Green Lantern came out the same year, and that's why I I keep mixing them up. So uh, even though I don't think I've seen the Green Lantern either, I did see that in theaters. Well, you'll be ready for that one. But I, I yeah, <laughs> I I keep calling this. Uh, I've called this a couple times. I called it the Green Lantern. Sebastian's been like, it's the Green Hornet. It's an easy mistake to make. Yeah. Oh just yeah. Say, it was the same year, and I so I I mean I I was aware, but yeah, I didn't see this until the other night. Let's sort of talk about the characters broadly instead of going in through every beat of the story. We'll start with uh, Seth Rogen's portrayal. I like Seth Rogen. I feel like in some small way we sort of look alike, so I kind of relate to him on that level. I've always seen him as sort of my more stoned uh, cinematic (laughs) avatar. So, you know, I was down for him being in the movie, and, you know, I think it's a decent enough take. He obviously, in the beginning, plays Brit as this sort of... uh, irresponsible partying playboy and you know fate sort of draws him into this role of being a superhero he basically decides to do it on his own and for the most part i do like it i do sometimes chafe a little bit at just the stuff that i sort of sense is sort of improv stuff which i've Mm -hmm. kind of grown a like low tolerance for just because it was so prevalent for a while like when he says stuff like oh my god look this is happening look at like you know when they're in the car driving or something oh my god we're gonna hit this thing it's like i'm gonna tell you what's happening and that's funny that's the joke no one wrote that in it yeah yeah you know that would never be in the screenplay it's obviously like an improv line so that kind of stuff i'm less enamored with But I do think that he's got a physicality that's kind of fun and it's kind of Mm -hmm. a slapsticky thing. But he also can kind of pull off action to some degree. Which is funny because that is, again, you know, kind of coasting on the idea that he's supposed to be an unlikely hero. And, and, And I think smartly the movie doesn't go over the top with like suddenly with him even improving or or uh his physical you know he's kind of got like a couple moves like a couple just like normal punches and kicks and then you know they they didn't take uh seth rogan and completely remake him it's not this is not like suddenly ben affleck in armageddon where you're like physically that's not the same man that was in chasing amy like it's just like (laughs) also when i first kind of heard that seth rogan was going to star in it as well i was like okay He's done being like kind of the butt of jokes is like being like the like kind of semi out of shape, doughy. You know, it's like I feel like it's like, okay, I've done that. So now I'm going to use this movie as the excuse to like completely, you know, go through a huge change. And it's like like Kamal Nanjani just did for Eternals. Right. You know, again, without having, you know, seen it at the time, but just knowing that he was signing on to star. And I'm like, either it is a total slapstick comedy 
but they were saying, you know, even then at the time, like, no, this is not. It's like, okay, this is Seth's excuse to just completely, you know, shed the stoner, like, out of shape slightly, but not totally. <laughs> I am sort of shocked that in a movie called The Green Hornet, he never found a way to, like, make pot part of the story. <laughs> Not even like just a, like a, a reference to it as like a, a crime, a crime that he has to fight. You know, right. you got to imagine that first Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg waking up on a morning with a signed contract in front of them. They're like, we signed to do what? Yeah. And and it's like, well, Green Hornet. And it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like something. we'd say. And then they find out it's like a really straight, like straight lace, like no nonsense <laughs> hero. And like, oh. The other sort of important factor to a Green Hornet movie is the character of Cato, because Cato is the actually physically capable character. And this movie especially leans on the idea that really the real hero here is Cato. He's got uh, not only mad martial arts skills, but he can fix up cars, makes super cool cars. He's Q. He's Q. <laughs> he can make cool gadgets. At one point, he makes uh, the Green Hornet this gas gun that he uses, and he can even make one hell of a latte, which is sort of how Brit comes to realize that Cato uh, has been playing this sort of invisible role in his life. Like we said, famously in the show, it was Bruce Lee, and it was Bruce Lee's coming out role. And along those lines, while this was in development, they were courting all these different famous Asian st martial arts stars. Jet Li was signed on apparently at one point the one that i really would have wanted to see was stephen chow i don't know if yeah. you're at all familiar with stephen chow's work oh, yeah. uh, god of cookery he's a sort of martial arts comedian really um sort of famous in hong kong i believe and he's amazing the stuff he does physically is just so well choreographed and so great and plus he's got a real good comic timing yeah i don't know jay cho but it was a real head scratcher when i saw this guy in the movie apparently he's a taiwanese pop singer yeah he is huge. i have no idea how he got into this so it's funny um i know a lot about that <laughs> lay it down all right the only consistent thing uh, about Cato is that he never has a name other than Cato. So Cato is his first name, and it's his ostensible hero name. Bruce Lee changed him to a martial, like to to martial arts. Uh, before then, in the radio and like the uh, movie serials, you just fight like normal. He was always um, uh, in the radio show. It always be like Britt Reed's personal valet. You could almost think of him as a more like a butler that follows you. So, like, whereas Alfred, like, stayed in Wayne Manor, yeah. like, Cato would come with him. But that's kind of how they always had it set up. More explicitly in the television show, he became Brit's chauffeur. You know, so he's always driving, and that explains his look. At the very beginning of the radio show, the opening of the opening narration would say, it would always say, Japanese personal va uh, valet. And then we get inched closer to World War II, and suddenly he became Filipino, of Japanese descent. And then we got into World War II and he fully just became Filipino. Concurrent with the radio show, they did two uh, serials, The Green Hornet and The Green Hornet Strikes Back. In those, he's explicitly Korean. 
Hmm. Like, like they pointed out in the story and then Bruce Lee, I'm, I'm assuming they're just going with Bruce Lee. So it's like Kato has started Japanese, ended up Korean and then Chinese. I mean, so it, it, it's almost points out like how interchangeable that people would treat like, cause these are big changes and they're just like, eh, you know, he's Asian. Nobody's going to notice. It's, I mean, it's exactly it. And uh, okay. Like the first time Michelle Gondry was hovering around, if you're thinking George Clooney, it's like right then it would have been Jackie Chan. That's who they would have been saying. Okay. Jackie Chan has to be Kato. Yeah. A couple years later, Jet Li, you know, it's like, they're not going to even just get into any specifics about where he comes from. But do you know how Jay Cho ended up in this role? I listened to the audio commentary on uh, the DVD. Nice. Awesome. Good. They say they tell a lot of stories on that one. And it's it's one that's done like the movie's not out in theaters yet. So it's, you know, but it's Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Neil Moritz, the producer and Michelle Gondry on this commentary. And they're in the same room because like twice during it, Evan Goldberg goes, you guys keep talking. I go to the bathroom. There was, it's a free and loose commentary. And um, they tell they talk all about the, the Stephen Chow thing and how. Because he was going to direct it and be Cato, but then um, they couldn't see eye to eye because he had way different ideas about the movie. So then he was going to drop out of directing, just Cato. Then at last minute, he drops out of being Cato and they are scrambling and they find this guy. Yeah, Jay Chow. Um, I guess he was in uh, some, I think they called it karate school. Or something, or so they're talking. They saw him in a movie, you know, where he did some good moves, and they do a like a because he's international, he doesn't speak English. Um, you know, they did like a Zoom audition, and they said like, yeah, it went surprisingly well. All of a sudden, they have no idea that yeah, he's like one of the top rappers. Wow. There's a song in the credits. If you hang around, you get past the green horn. There's a rap song, and it's him. Wow, I did not realize okay. that. And they didn't connect the dots that like this is this guy. And they said in an earlier draft, there's a line in the movie where Cato talks about like something that he likes about where he's from. And in the one of the first scripts, Cato was supposed to name drop Jay Chow as the reference. Huh. I love him. Like, I think he's great. But I, don't, I think that's the only movie he's made, you know, in America. I don't recall seeing him ever since. Yeah. But so they I mean, in, in a lot of it, it's like basically him and then the casting of the villain ended up the same thing. They had someone, had someone all the way up until like pretty close to production. And then that person drops in a way. He was almost like a consolation prize. And they even kind of say that in the the commentary that like, man, if Stephen Chow had been, you know, could you imagine? Like, right. Like, he, <laughs> even Michelle Gondry, who's like, you know, I would be like, dude, he's the director. Like maybe don't like talk yeah. about how the guy that was, but no, he's like, Oh yeah, it would be great. And <laughs> But what they ended up, you know, saying is uh, there's no way the rapport that Seth's Brit would have had with Stephen Chow's Kato would have been as good as it is, you know, with Jay Chow. So it's uh, it feels like they almost cast him the way that Judd Apatow cast is like, you guys get along? OK, cool. Like now you're Kato is almost more of a story about like who it's not than who it ended up being. <laughs> And I think he's really pretty good in the role. And I mean, he acquits himself physically and he's charming. Super charming, I have to say. I do think sometimes his English is a little rough. Well, yeah, he doesn't know it. Uh, yeah, so he's probably just phonetically mm -hmm. working it out. Jen, how did you feel about uh, Jay Chow as Kato? 
I loved him. I, I think he's great. I was su super charmed by him. Um, I think he's got really good comedic timing, too. And he and Seth Rogen, I mean, he's just very deadpan with a lot of things. And um, he's just, I don't know, he's just really cute. I, I just was endeared to him. I mean, the character is incredible. Like, there's nothing that Cato can't do. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know, it's like he's making these, he has this, this cappuccino machine that's just like, it looks like something NASA made or, you know, it's just all the stuff with the cars and um, he's just so on top of things. And, and you were talking about the, um, the gun that he designs for uh, the Green Hornet that's the knockout gas. It was reminding me of um, another film that we covered that's coming out tomorrow's episode even, right? Yeah, tomorrow. You can say it in this episode because people will have already heard that. And I guessed it on Twitter. Uh, you did. You were right. It's Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey, yeah. But we were thinking about, you know, when Harley goes into the police station, it's like she's got all these, like, ridiculous weapons, you know, like beanbag guns and confetti and things yeah. like that. And I also loved the scene where it's like Seth Rogen totally, like, unleashes it on himself. Mm -hmm. And then it's like he wakes up and he's, like, hooked to an IV and... I don't know. There was just some things that made me laugh out loud that were really funny. And it's like he finds out he thinks he's like, oh, it's only two in the afternoon. He's like, no, it's two on Thursday. But it's like at the following Thursday. So it's been like 11 yeah. days later or something. He's yeah. been out. And he's got like the adult diapers on and everything. It's yeah. just I yeah, that stuff really makes me laugh. But yeah, Cato, um, I think he's great. I just appreciated that he. And he even says in in the film at some point that, you know, he doesn't speak English that well. Just, I don't know. I was just really in, in, endeared to him. I think he's I think he's a great Cato. In my effort to call back to previous episodes of yours, I'm not going to call back to an episode. <laughs> I'm now going to call back to a previous guest. So is it Rodney that does the thing? It's like, show me one scene. Yes, that's Rodney. I almost tried to imitate his voice there. I, I, that, it's pretty good. In a way, like, I honestly think the scene of Cato giving Brit the gas gun and then the punchline of Brit knocking himself out. But just that that scene where Brit's all excited. He gets he got a present and Cato tries to sell it. Is that like, hey, I made you something cool. Like, this is great. And then Brit's like confused. Like, why is it a gas gun? And then, OK, like. So where's yours? Like, why, you know, why don't you also have a weapon? And Kato is basically trying to say, like, I don't need it. Like, you need something. I don't. He does. And <laughs> the way that they play that kind of Kato trying not to just say what we know and almost like mercifully, like Seth knocks himself out with like, because, you know, he, at that point, like he's he that suddenly feels insulted to me. That's the scene like which is weird to say for a comic book movie that I would show someone out of context and said, like, if you like the dynamic here, if you like the comedy, this will be the movie you will want to watch. And what's weird is again, yeah, Cato Jay doesn't speak English. So he's probably speaking just phonetically, but his mannerisms, he's got, he can sell a lot uh, with, with, without, and, and has a really good rapport with Seth Rogen that like, I'm honestly was kind of surprised that it's like, oh, this isn't just like one of like Seth's buddies, you know, like because it did seem like they had like a pretty good rapport. So. Yeah, I agree with you with that scene, although I would amend that there is another pretty spectacular action scene. And that's near the end of the movie when they get the car in that elevator yeah. and then the elevator oh goes God. up through the <laughs> floors like 
smashing the car through like yeah. the glass floors. And then has him jump into the front seat because the back of the car is going to be chopped off. And then he makes the joke. Cato makes the joke. He's like front wheel drive. Right. And it is. <laughs> and that is, I think that was the point where I turned to you, Sebastian, and I was like, this movie was so expensive. I know. Like, I mean, it's just yeah. like insane yeah they spared no expense in that sequence for sure in the commentary track they they talk about that where it's like you know seth rogan's like I've, i don't know i've never been on a movie like this you know big before so it's like the amount of things that like would all like put a pause on production to sort out a problem they're like just like yeah no oh you need another car sorry like there's we don't have enough yeah don't worry you guys keep filming we'll get another car you know and it's like you could tell that uh, they almost wanted to work with less of a budget than they were given. I, I feel like is, is really what it comes down to. And I, that's a very interesting place to be. <laughs> On one hand, it's great because you've been given $120 million to make a Green Hornet movie and you can smash up as many cars as you want. But at the same time, you've been given $120 million yeah. to make a Green Hornet movie. And if it doesn't make its budget back, like this movie didn't really do. Right. And you probably are like wondering who from the studio is going to come to murder you, right? Well, and it's funny because in that commentary track, they talk about like how they met with every car manufacturer that wanted to do like the Black Beauty is this new model of car. Like there was all of this stuff. I guess they actually did a... Uh, carl's jr commercial uh-huh because <laughs> uh, i guess that's who got the you know green hornet like happy meal i don't know what the carl's jr <laughs> version is like but i guess yeah there is a car which i kind of honestly want to look up like because seth rogan was talking about like the day he's recording that commentary he's like yeah we we just shot a carl's jr commercial where hey don't i go through the drive-through in the black beauty in the black beauty and you're like okay this is that kind of movie if they're doing that they were expecting you know big returns I do love the Black Beauty. It's a really cool car. Oh, I'm not man. sure exactly what kind of car it is. It's sort of a muscle car. I guess it's a, an imperial car. Yeah. It's really cool looking. And I don't know if the headlights are actually green or if they're just doing that in post. But it has cool green headlights. And um, yeah, it's a cool car. I, I love that car. And I love that they trick it out as a sort of Batmobile-like uh, car. Is that the way it is in the um tv show do you remember yeah actually yeah specifically the tv show while bruce lee was like the breakout star i think the tv show there was almost more like the way the batmobile batman i think they were really trying with the tv show so yeah it was definitely like and, and actually we, we were talking about the scene in the elevator when they're trying to figure out what still works that's the one time they basically recreated um a moment from the show not wow. in the elevator but there would always be a scene like adam west batman where it'd be like the you know checking like whatever the tricks on the black beauty are there'd be right. the shot from the back seat and be like uh rear rockets yes came from the show but the black beauty was in the radio show and it would occasionally like in any kind of thing it always had some weird I'm assuming it's like behind the rear license plate where like tax would fall out to pop the tires or someone else. Um, so it was much more of a normal car. It just had um, 
uh, wasn't one of those like muffler whistles, so it always sounded like a bee buzzing. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so then that's it again for the radio. So like that's what you got to do. Um, if you heard like a buzzing sound, it's like that's the Black Beauty driving. They should have done that for this movie. Yeah, they should have had a buzzing muffler. I know they they do. It's but it's mixed into the soundtrack, and it's all a version of the. Uh, is it William? Is it William Tell over? Is that that's the Lone Ranger? Right. No. No. Yeah, it's a play of Bumblebee. It's an easy confusion. Well. They are a carbon copy of each other. Lone Rangers first, but it's literally the same producer and the same writer and everything's a parallel. So like they're both outlaws. They both have sidekicks, ethnic sidekicks. So the Lone Ranger's the Lone Ranger, the Green Hornet's the Green Hornet, Kato and Tonto, first names. So <laughs> yeah. instead of silver, there's the Black Beauty. So it's like they they really just took like, okay, uh, Lone Ranger's super um, popular. Let's just create a new version. And it was like, and that was it um, to the point that they ended up connecting them. So like it's John Reed is the Lone Ranger. Oh, so Britt Reed is his great grand nephew. Wow. I did not know that. And in the radio show, in one of the later episodes, Britt's father is alive, but he's a, he's kind of like an, a retired guy elsewhere. And now and then call up Brit like you're ruining my paper. Like you don't take the family business seriously. But there was one episode. There's something going on. He meets with his father. His father tells this really long story about like this law, this outlaw and this legend. And it's a, one of the best moments in old time radio, like because they actually showed a little restraint and you heard like the Green Hornet music. And as the father's talking, slowly up comes the Williams Hell Overture. Nice. So they never say that's who it was. You know, they let right. them they let the moment happen. Thinking about your guys' episode about the Lone Ranger. As I've said, I will talk to the, my podcasts that I listen to while I'm um, cutting the grass. And my neighbor, my neighbors love me. <laughs> but you know, talking about how inexplicable it is that that movie, the Lone Ranger, opens with an older Tonto talking to a little kid. The year that that scene happens is also supposed to be the is around the year that like the green hornet was launched so i looked it up i'm like was that kid's name brit it's not oh it will is the kid's name which so i was like will rogers like i don't know but i would not be surprised if there was an earlier draft or something where that was supposed to be brit reed and it was tonto inspiring him but i at some point the rights got all jumbled and those two properties could never be intertwined you know if disney could have they would have definitely made that kid Brit Reed. There's no reason not to. So I have a feeling that changed at late stage. But and also in this movie, he's got a Lone Ranger poster. Um so you know this movie only acknowledges in that. But um otherwise they are the same character. Man, you're blowing my mind with that. I did not realize they were actually related. Yep. It's a universe. Let's talk a little bit about our villains briefly. Um we basically have two villains in this movie. Uh, one is a Russian gangster played by Christoph Waltz, Chudnovsky. Ch Chudnovsky. Yeah. Chudnovsky, which none <laughs> of the other gangsters can pronounce, and they mock him for it. So later, after the Green Hornet makes his first appearances, he wants to adopt a no, more fearsome persona and starts calling himself Bloodnovsky, which <laughs> is just silly and ridiculous. And he starts wearing... Um, red. And this was sort of the time of Christoph Waltz's were post Inglorious Bastards. But before James Bond. Before James Bond and before um, Django Unchained. 
he took a lot of sort of villain roles around this time. This isn't necessarily one of his most notable. He does a fine job in the scenes he gets, and he plays a little bit of comedy. You know, he's kind of doing this straight man sort of comedy where everyone thinks his name is ridiculous, but, you know, he wants to be taken seriously and fearful. There's a scene in the beginning where we get Seth's best friend at the time, <laughs> maybe not anymore. Uh, James Franco is playing this like low level mobster and he's making fun of Chudnovsky's voice. And of course, Chudnovsky turns out to be far more fearsome than he appears. And we get that great uh, Christoph Waltz sort of menace coming out. How do you feel about uh, Christoph Waltz as the villain here? I now love it. I had a lot of problems with it when I first watched the movie. Some of it came from uh, something I remember Seth Rogen say, which was in writing the villain, he wanted to, you know, usually it's like the hero is fighting like the really tough, like villain at, at his peak. You know, he wanted to have the Green Hornet be trying to learn to be a hero almost while the a villain was on like the decline, which I was like, man, that's a not the way you want to sell drama, like any kind of conflict. Like, you know, you're, it's almost like saying like, ah, we want a villain we can kick while he's down. It's like, right. <laughs> you know, what they ended up doing is not that he's on the decline, but that um, he's got to reinvent himself. He's got to, it's, you got to teach an old dog new tricks, you know? And I now, I, I love, I love that conceit because uh, I feel like what, at first seemed like something that kind of weakened the villain. Like he doesn't seem like a threat, even when he's menacing. It's like, if you know, this guy's like losing his control, he, he's just less menacing. I now feel like it's a strength because it makes him more unpredictable, more desperate, you know? So even while played for comedy, it's like, I can see why that's still a menacing um, thing. So I'm, Full Camp Bloodnovsky. I think he's great. I'm a super fan of his. I'm happy to see him in anything. And uh, I think he's awesome. I, I love that. And, you know, kind of what Matt was just saying. It's like he's total psycho. But yes, he has like this, or at least this plane that he has this, this, you know, vulnerability of like, he doesn't think that he's that cool. And James Franco, like totally is digging at that, you know, at the beginning. And then like he busts out these like, double barrel, like handguns. It's double barrel, like very literally. <laughs> um, and he has two, he has one in each hand. So he just like takes out like the four guys behind James Franco. And it's just like, that's, that's the introduction to him. And he's like, am I scary now? You know, are you in, 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 and then the, the scene with James Franco was so great because James Franco's like, I'll be that guy. If you're going to leave me, I'll tell the tale of, of Chud, Chud Yeah, Nosky. he still can't get the name. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And he's just, you know, I, but I'll tell everyone how fear, you know, I'm so scared of you and blah, blah, blah. And we, and we get Christoph Waltz walking out and just clicks a button and blows up the whole building. Yeah, it's a great intro. And, and I, I mean, I, I appreciate that he's kind of toying with that, and like trying to get like a cooler, slicker, like more fearsome image or like trying to brand himself yeah. or do it like a new branding and and because he's really threatened by because the green hornet that's the whole thing he's doing because he has control of the paper is he's you know like let's get all this press out about him and you know they're using which we haven't talked about cameron diaz's character yet but using her her insight into criminology as to like 
which I think this part was great too. Like there's a lot of stuff I liked about this film. I love that they're like using her to, to do research as to what the Green Hornet's going to do next because they don't fucking right. know what they're doing. Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's so brilliant because they're like, you know, and they, they, they admit that at the end, they're like, she's like, you were asking me <laughs> all of these things. And they're like, because we don't know what to do. And anyway, I just, I, I really appreciated that whole thing. And, um, Christoph Waltz's character is just he's just really just trying to hang on to what he has because he's the guy who's supposed to be running all of the crime in LA and like now people are kind of breaking off and doing their own thing because of this Green Hornet and so he's like you know he's got to get everybody back in line and he wants to stay on top of things and be relevant and be feared and all of that so I I think he's a great character and one of the things that that they said and it was a great setup was with James Franco like it was Christoph Waltz says to him like there was a time when like you would have been too afraid to even open this business and like that's essentially they're having a business meeting because Christoph Waltz should have been the one to like give the go-ahead for like James Franco to open this club and um the scene also makes me think like I was never a big James Franco fan. Like, whereas, like, you know, him and Seth Rogen at the same time, obviously friends, like, they were kind of known more as, like, almost like the one note guys. Like, Seth's kind of the stoner that's maybe a little smarter or, like, is deceptively clever. And then Franco was always the stoner that's kind of like an airhead. In this scene, though, he's funny. Like, I think this might be my my favorite thing for James Franco because he's just throwing out lines like, look at his office. Like, look at all the shit I've got made of glass. Like, it is, yeah. like he has like a, like, this is how, like, I'm not scared of you, Christoph Waltz. My office is full of things made of glass. And like, right. he delivers it in such a way where you're like, you look at his face and you're like, he would say that. Like he right. would, he would be so smarmy to pull that off. And watching the scene, you know, it's like, yeah, you're a creep, but man, the, you have to separate the two because it's like that he's legit funny in it. And, yeah. and he's a perfect foil to like show Christoph Waltz go from like this kind of weirdly like insecure villain to menacing and, and will kill you with no hesitancy. I've got Seth Rogen's book here. Oh, wow. He he has a chapter on the Green Hornet in here, but it's really about Nicolas Cage was cast as the villain. That story is crazier than I ever knew. The first meeting that Seth Rogen has with with Nick Cage um, is over the phone, and Seth Rogen is trying to explain, like, what the villain is, and Nick Cage interrupts to say that he wants to play a bald guy but have hair tattooed on my head and (laughs) and big prosthetic lips. And do a voice like Edward G. Robinson. So it's like the nightmare version of Dick Tracy, like the way everyone villain looked in Dick Tracy, yep. but like even more nightmarish. But before <laughs> he was able to even like Seth Rogen would respond to that, Nicholas Cage interrupted him and say, actually not the tattooed hair thing, because he might do that in real life and it would make it weird. Right. <laughs> this is their first conversation. And he's like, okay. Like they couldn't see eye to eye. So the, the, uh, Amy Pascal, who's like the, one of the co-heads of Sony or whatever. Like yeah, she's the main producer behind all the Spider-Man movies. Yes. She had Nick Cage, Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg at her house for dinner, just the four of them. But what she had warned them ahead of time um, before is that Nick had a new idea for the villain. <laughs> and he wants to be, and I maybe I'm not going to pronounce it right, it's a, a Bahamian from the Bahamas. Oh, no. Seth Rogen thinks bohemian, and, and she says no, and he wants to do it with an accent. And and Seth Rogen said, like, okay, he basically wants to do 
Gary Oldman in True Romance, but in 2008 and not funny, not like self-aware. Right. (laughs) And so when they actually go to have the dinner, Cage launches into a just he just starts acting out a scene before they've even sat down. He says, imagine you're the Green Hornet and I'm pouring pig's blood over you. I've got you tied up. And Seth Rogen's like, there's nothing ever in any version of the screenplay that had pig's blood. Wow. And he then goes into an accent saying, you know, it's like L.O. and it's Ornit. Like he's trying to, in a Jamaican, like he's trying to do that. He acts out the scene and and then uh, no one responds well to it. So he leaves. He doesn't stay for the dinner. Wow. And then a couple weeks later, they're like, he, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do the movie. And that's how they get Christoph Waltz, who was on board with like this, like Chudnovsky, Blodnovsky. A few years later. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, like Nicolas Cage, had a meeting with them again for dinner, over dinner with him and his manager. And the thought was there was a script that was coming through their production company that he was attached to star. And so it was like, oh, this is what this is going to be about. It's a business meeting. And when they sit down for dinner, Seth Rogen starts kind of going like, oh, it's been you know a few years. Sorry about the whole Green Hornet thing. Like, you know, we just didn't see eye to eye. And, I, and Nicolas Cage jumps right into going, um, you're friends with Franco, aren't you? And... Seth Rogen's like, yeah. And he goes, do you see Spring Breakers? And Seth Rogen's like, yeah. And he goes, do you tell Franco my uh, bohemian idea? Oh, wow. And Seth Rogen's like, no, like what? And he goes, I'm pretty sure, because he's like, I'm pretty sure after that meeting, you told your friend about this and he stole my idea. (gasps) And, and, And then Seth Rogen's like, I don't even think that's who Franco's playing in the movie. He's not like... And then, no, he just has like cornrows. That's and it. Then he looks at his watch, goes, Oh, sorry, I got something to do, and leaves. So, two meetings that they had with him <laughs> never stayed for dinner and left. Like this time, he left them with their man, with his manager. And then they went to the manager, like, So, are we here to talk about like the script that came through our thing? And the manager had no idea. So, Nick Cage really booked a meeting with them to accuse Seth Rogen of stealing his bit and giving it to Franco. That almost makes me a little sad that we didn't get to see his bizarro <laughs> spring breaker take on this. Right. And that's the, the thing, right? Like, and that's again with Nicholas Cage is the thing. And even Seth Rogen kind of talks about that. It's like, it's, he said, it's very exciting to hear like that Nicholas Cage is going to be in your movie. But then he's like, that's a, that's a loaded uh, thing that you're getting. It's like, you might get the best thing you've ever seen, or you're going to get something that you are going to regret. I think you just have to give yourself over to the Nicholas Caginess of it all. And just (laughs) be like, this is what the movie's going to be. It's going to be Nicholas Cage going crazy and this is how we're gonna sell i mean that's what they're doing now with all of his movies you know what i mean it's like oh yeah nicholas cage is gonna be crazy in this right you wait and then you're disappointed if he's not crazy enough you know usually in a superhero movie you've got the villain that is the sort of outward more upfront comic booky type villain and then a lot of times you have a sort of bureaucratic villain who is perhaps in uh the government or the system or whatever and that's very huge in green hornet green hornet would never be known for its super villains or any kind of it's it's always yeah someone that's in the system it's 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 a politician or something like that that's where the villain territory for green hornet usually is so the Green Hornet is sort of the enemy of corruption. Yes, exactly. And, and, and you know, again, in the radio, so the radio show that was 
a product of its time. So, you know, the, I don't know how many elections happened in that world, but like for as many episodes as there were and like every episode seemed to be about like stealing ballots on an election or whatever. I'm like it, it was always some graft. It was graft was the buzzword. Clearly that's sort of what the David Harbor character is doing here. It's kind of fun to see David Harbor before his Stranger Things breakout. Now he sort of plays a much more middle-aged and sort of schlubby guy. I mean, he's middle-aged and schlubby here, but not as middle-aged and schlubby as he is now. Was he in Black Widow? Was He yep. was her dad, yep. right? Or the, uh, her fake dad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So is he normally like the schlubby guy? Well, yeah, I mean, he's a big guy for one. So he's tall yeah. and he's also not heavy, but he's just, you know. No, he's just kind of doughy. Kind of doughy okay. a, big, a little. He's a big guy. And I mean, in the Hellboy yeah. movie, I'm sure he's wearing some sort of oh, prosthetic yeah chest or whatever he might have gotten into some semblance of shape but you know normally he's a little out of shape a little paunchy pudgy type of guy if you know before this conversation if someone was like so uh you know what do you think of david harbour i'd probably be like stud <laughs> like <laughs> ripped and people because i would only have like one for you know be like, like well, i'm sorry my my framework or my, my frame of reference for him it's the Hellboy movie <laughs> that no one watched. White hot sex is usually what I think <laughs> of when I think of David Harbour. But yeah, he plays such like an 80s, like 1980s, like smarmy. Like the he's introduced like at the funeral scene or afterwards. But it's so clear that he's not a good guy. Like even yeah. in their like scene of kind of bonding over uh, was it like just horrible fathers. I think it was what it was. It's like you're like, yeah, you're, you're not going to be a good guy. Uh, but he is in the show. D.A. Scanlon oh, is okay. in the TV show is the Commissioner Gordon. Right. That's what I would have assumed. Yeah. If anyone cared about the Green Hornet, this would have been like at the end of Mission Impossible <laughs> when, you know, the reveal is that like the good guy all along is the bad guy. It's like, right. That's what this should have been. But no one was like, D.A. Scanlon. Like, you know, was... How dare they make D.A. Scanlon a bad guy? And the only reason why it's even D.A. Scanlon is because in the radio show, it was, a commis- it was a police commissioner. Not Commissioner Gordon, but it, it was Commissioner Gordon. And come the TV show time, they were like, well, we can't have two commissioners. So uh, he's the district attorney. So it's interesting that that is the character of Scanlon that is David Harbour. And this is another thing from the show. He does a good job. I mean, it's not. He's, there's not much to his character. He just sort of, yeah, plays a secondary sort of bad guy. Well, I just actually wanted to touch on um, when they meet, when they when we're introduced to him at the funeral, and he's like sticks his head in the the limo or whatever, and it's like, like Matt was saying, you know, yeah, we've got bad dads. Let's have a drink sometime. I really want to make sure that we talk about another scene that made me laugh out loud, which I'm just going to bring it up right now is with his dad, Tom Wilkinson, who is great. The best thing ever when we're getting young Brit, who's like probably like nine or 10 or something at the time. So young Brit has been suspended from school and he gets taken to his dad's place of work and his dad's like chewing him out, Tom Wilkinson. And... (laughs) And he like takes his, he's holding on to like, we see him driving in the car on the way to the, the office and he's got like this kind of Superman looking like character out the window and they get to the office and the, and dad's just like letting him have it because, you know, he's in trouble again and he da 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 and he proceeds to take his toy and pull the head off of the toy and I was just dying. 
gold. Like this, like this is such another level of like, wow. Yeah. Like I'm just gonna decapitate your toy and throws the head in the trash, and then there's like young Brit with this headless caped crusader or whatever it's just i'm like i'm like tearing up right now because it was like one of my favorite things truth be told i have to say like in the wake of batman begins coming out where suddenly you know for the first time in movies like the idea of thomas wayne is a character in the movie but then also just like a name you have to live up to but you want to live up to him because he was perfect literally thomas wayne like bruce should have died because thomas was the you know it's like you know it's like he's so good so i think it was kind of i don't know intentionally to subvert that like to open this movie with like the anti thomas wayne you know it's like if if in batman begins we saw uh the most patient loving guy that you know he was a saint and it's like to have tom wilkinson cast member from that from batman begins show up and just be the yeah a jerk and i mean i've accidentally broken um an action figure my my younger son is like the one that's into comics and stuff and um he stole a bunch of my action figures which were desk decorations but uh then last but i stepped on one of his toys and 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 it snapped and this was five years ago i still feel guilty about it i glued it and i bought him a new one and i still feel guilty in tom just to see tom wilkins and go (laughs) (laughs) i was like i'm like dude you're evil i get it yeah and tom wilkinson is always an enjoyable presence as you mentioned he is in batman begins he plays a despicable uh carmine falcone in that but he's more likable in that (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's posting about murdering people and like buying off judges. And you're like, I like this guy, like compared to the other guy. I'm like, oh. he shows up to sort of, you know, berate Brit for not living up to his potential. You know, he busts in on him after he's been partying all night and is with some hottie and gives him a dressing down. And then his death by bee sting is sort of the catalyst <laughs> that kicks off the whole story. Which is all invented for the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not from the show or from the serial or anything, no. No, it's interesting because, again, a blank slate character, like the radio shows, if ever had an origin, it would be the briefest. In the shadow, it was like he, he went to the Orient and learned magic and came back. And you're like, okay, they didn't even do that. They didn't even do that with um, Green Hornet. They, he just like, he showed up as is. <laughs> like he was uh-huh. the as is model. And they just, I mean, their show might as well start with like, it's kind of like the Lone Ranger. Okay, go. So there's never been any backstory. Um, the only interesting thing is, and Seth Rogen says he didn't read Kevin Smith's draft. As a writer, like I know that's not BS. Yeah. You know, you hear that like, oh, I didn't even see that movie. It's like, no, you watched the movie. Like, come on. But like, I think writers really don't read other people's drafts if they can avoid it. But their approach to Brit was very similar. He was the party guy and the father was killed. And then now he has to take over. But in the Kevin Smith draft, he was supposed to be the Green Hornet from the TV show. The dad was. So so the son finds out after the dad dies that he had been the Green Hornet. And they both kind of start with Brit at the same place. I was trying to think is like, was that just the logical place to start it? I think it was. I, I mean, I think it really is. If, you, if you're thinking about being a writer cracking this and you need to come up with some sort of reason 
why he's going to become the Green Hornet. I'm not trying to say they're lazy, but I'm, it's just the first kind of thing you'd sort of come up with. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's a very logical thing. And like most comic book characters have like either dad issues or mom issues, right. you know, so pick one. And dads are easier for male characters to yeah. emulate. So it just makes sense, really. Right. Well, and it's funny because I, I almost feel like in the movie they, they almost did too too much work like explaining like how the name came about and stuff like that you know i mean it's nice to see and it's nice to see it um done for the first time even with an old even though it's an older character it doesn't feel like like those retread moments where you're like okay we just got to get through this like I, I i they did a good job incorporating it all so seth rogan and um evan goldberg put way more work into like why he's the green hornet than anyone else because <laughs> Well, and I think that's a byproduct of what superhero movies had sort of become. It's you're sort of obligated to do that, especially in the wake of Batman Begins, yeah. you know, where they went really hardcore into even giving you more and more and more yeah. than you even thought of Bruce Wayne's oh, yeah. as Batman. Suddenly nothing was accidental. Like everything about a character was a component that like is its own story and you're like okay wow this is <laughs> everything informed the choice right. to become batman and his money and resources informed all the different gadgets and stuff like that so yeah i feel like in this case it's just this is what superhero movies were doing at this time so it's just sort of like an obligation yeah and I agree with you. I think they go further with it than they have to. Yeah. But again, if they didn't, you wouldn't get that great scene with Tom Wilkinson ripping off the head of an action figure. Yeah. And you wouldn't get the um, interesting uh, daydream thought sequence later where Michelle Gondry, you know, the few moments where he's like, you know what? Do I for one second want to see David Harbour carrying a giant syringe for just like two frames? Do I want that? Yes, I do. And if we didn't have... Uh, this whole device, then we would not have gotten that weird image. We should touch upon that really quickly, too, is just there are moments within this movie where Michelle Gondry sort of takes artistic license and there'll be an action scene when suddenly, you know, the camera will do sort of weird, you know, things and characters will sort of freeze and frame and they almost do almost like a bullet timey thing, but it's a little different. Yeah. You can definitely tell in those moments that we are in a Michelle Gondry film. It's pretty cool. I kind of wish there was more of that in there, honestly. The movie was shot for 3D, which I would have completely forgotten were it not for the end credits when all of a sudden, like, the credits yeah. oh, come yeah, at yeah. you all yeah. weird and like yep. there's a hornet flying in front of the screen yep. as the credits are going. And I'm like, what? What's what's going on with these credits? And then I'm like, oh, this was probably in 3D. Yeah. So when it's conversion, that means that they're taking like a movie that was not shot for 3D and adding 3D elements. Yeah, but that was not the case. This was real D. Some of it was, though, because that's what you because, again, I was listening to the commentary. So I, I was wondering if it was maybe one of those things where they shot certain scenes in 3d Michelle Gondry when in the commentary one, it's very hard to understand him half the time. Mm -hmm. He's got just the, I mean, he is a French cartoon character, like just yeah. the way, you know, in Seth Rogen, even jokes, he's like, dude, we can't do subtitles on the commentary. <laughs> so there's a lot of times where, um, 
Michelle Gondry will say something and then Seth Rogen will go, uh, Gondry said, and he will like interpret, but it's funny. Cause I, I think, um, what we see with those kind of like the Cato vision, which is almost like predator. I feel like one, I know those were his ideas. Like, so, you know, and you wonder if like, uh, that was even the stuff he was kind of thinking about or, ver you know, stuff like that, which is what brought him to it, you know, earlier, yeah. cause you're getting a music video director. I guess I was kind of on the fence. It's like, I don't know if I wanted more of them or I don't want them not there at all, but what's weird about watching this movie and weird why it's like, you'd almost be apprehensive to say like, Oh yeah, the whole, the whole movie works, but like, I can't confidently say that because it's like, I like the action scene, but I'm also distracted by the action scene. And I feel like more of them, you would be like, I might've been like style overkill, but removing them totally makes it nothing so i don't know i can't tell where i'm at on that <laughs> like if they were there i would just wonder why michelle gondry needed to be the director of this you know because i'm not seeing him in any other real facets of it the only other thing i have to say and i wonder maybe he's maybe he's the only other member of my club he he stuck around on the project for years in the 90s and it wasn't something where he i guess he had storyboarded a bunch of stuff so it's he seemed to have either maybe had some weird fondness for the character or grew to like it because he is pretty passionate about like about this character, which is very weird because, again, I'm like the only one who is. <laughs> it's totally unusual to have a director attached to a project in one version in one version then come back like 10 or more years later and end up doing it'd be like Jodorowsky getting to do Dune after like 20 years you know it'd be like yeah. weird it's very unusual that rarely ever happens in Hollywood right and the fact that it's not like oh well it's because Gondry wrote it and it's been sitting around and he, right. you know it's like no there was a writer and it was one of like the super 90s like Jonathan Hensley or so, someone where it's like, I remember if a Bruckheimer produced it, like I've seen that, like that name that there was like three writers that were always around. It's like, it was that guy with Michelle Gondry. So yeah, you're like, it's, it's weird to come back around. So the last thing we should probably touch upon in terms of the movie is the Cameron Diaz character. I know we brought her up. This was probably a little bit after the heyday of Cameron Diaz. She wasn't necessarily the big leading lady that she had been five years prior. It's good to see her in the movie. I do feel like her character is pretty mishandled because they try to do this thing where Seth Rogen has a thing for her, but she maybe has a thing for Cato. They're trying to set up this jealousy between Cato uh, and Brit, which doesn't really work. It's like you could easily have them be in conflict and they are in conflict later in the movie because of more just that, Brit is jealous of Cato. Mm -hmm. I didn't need Brit to be jealous of Cato because he's maybe going to get with Cameron Diaz, which they don't even commit to that idea anyway. Like if Cato actually got with her, then that would maybe be something. And she nixed it, Cameron Diaz. It maybe it was something on on set that it was like, okay, they would have gone a little farther with it. So it made it feel like it fit in the movie more. But it's like she did, was like, oh, we're not. I don't want the character to kiss either of them. It's like, okay, so 
now it, it does. It feels like a leftover, like half thought out plot point for her. To make matters worse in this post Me Too environment, we do get a lot of scenes where Seth Rogen is ostensibly her boss. Oh, yeah. And he's aggressively trying to get her to go out with them and like even like like yeah. firing her or then being like, no, you're not fired or, or something yeah. like that. It's like sexual harassment, like 101. And even is kind of like he tries to sort of play it off like, I know I'm sexually harassing you, but yeah. I'm not really sexually harassing you. <laughs> In this post Me Too climate, it's a little uncomfortable. To be fair, like, I don't think at any point Brit was supposed to like appear like cool or suave for that. Like, you know what I mean? So it's not yeah. like it was it was already making him the butt of the joke. And I feel like that aspect of it might only really be there because that was her character on the TV show. She, I can't remember on the TV show if she knew Brit was Green Hornet or not, but like she was the money penny, the just like, you know, she really loves him, but like she'll just be the nice secretary until he realizes that she, he's in love with her too. Like that's, right. that was the, so I, you know, I, it's low, she's Lois Lane is you know yeah. if we're going to use comic book shorthand in the radio show she is the dutiful secretary to brit reed and rarely rises above that although later in the show she does find out brit is the green hornet and actually for the time and i'm talking like 1939 on radio she was depicted better than you would you know expect um mm -hmm. so i i give them also credit for trying to add that element back in Cameron Diaz's portrayal of her, like that she's not just the secretary. It's not fleshed out well, but it could have been even more of a thankless role, I think. It could have been a real throwaway. So, you know, I, I give them credit for trying to do something with it. Well, Jen, as the woman in this conversation, <laughs> you need to weigh in on this. How do you feel about Cameron Diaz in this role and how she's portrayed and how she has to deal with the sexual harassment? I like Cameron Diaz and I was happy to see her show up in this. I, I think she looks great. I Yeah, there's a whole lot of uncomfortable things right from, you know, Jump Street with like, He's, you know, trying to say she's like long in the tooth. Mm -hmm. I I love that actually. I that is some hilarious like he's like, saying something along the lines of like it was just kind of feels like it was improv where he was talking about different movies and he was like, uh, you know, I, I would think you would be more um feeling cocoon or something yeah. like that. You know, it's just so he's like he's also being kind of ageist a little bit yeah. too. Um I, I agree with what Matt was saying. It's like he's never coming off um, smooth in any way. So I, I think that's kind of why it gets a pass because he's kind of like so over the top and cartoonish about it. I actually like that she doesn't get with either of them. And I, I think she just, I mean, the way I took it with Cato, it's like she actually just liked Cato as a person because he wasn't being like how Brit is, yeah. you know? And it's like, and we don't really know what her background is because she doesn't want to get into it. That was something that he brought up. Like, why are you, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a double major and a degree and, you know, criminology and, and journalism, like, and you know, you're older, like, why are you yeah. coming in as a secretary, you know? And she's like, that's none of your business. Yeah. And, you know, she's living in this cute house by herself. You know, we don't really know what her deal is. So I, I appreciate kind of that 
they, you know, they they just didn't go there. They had Cato come over and they like hung out. And Cato, you could see he was kind of into her when they're playing the piano and he's like putting his arm around her. And she's not really there for it. I think she just wanted friendship. And I, yeah, wasn't needed to have one more layer of jealousy. I think it just kind of stacked on top of like the jealous relationship that. Brit and Cato were, were dealing with, um, you know, Cato just being better at everything. <laughs> They're kind of brothers and they even talk about themselves being brothers. So it's very like a sibling rivalry type thing. And um, I, I loved that. I think that was this really great comedy that that scene where they show up at her place because they're on the run at the end where everything's just gone totally off the wall. And of course, she's in there in like her cute little boy shorts. Yeah. We had to get like and rock and bod. Go, Cameron. What you're saying about that scene, though, is the scene where they reveal to her that like they've essentially been not. Manip- well, I guess manipulating her like she's been the brains of the operation without knowing she's the brains of the operation and I yeah. and that to me is great because that's more than this character ever ever had in any incarnation before so I like that that is revealed in that scene that she's the brains of the operation and it's a funny scene but it is at the wrong place in the movie because we have just had this big action climax and then we get like 15 more minutes of movie right yeah it, there is a moment where you're like this movie why wait why is this still going and yeah it is weird it's so weird and we just had this huge like climax happen at the sentinel or whatever i mean like this crazy action sequence and then this happens and right it's a bummer because it's a good payoff it is still part of the resolute you know i mean like there is kind of almost a reason it has to be later because of what they set up but it's yeah the wrong way to pace a movie. No, and I understand that, but this is like the writer's challenge, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you, you, you have to figure these things out. You're like, okay, we need them to have this moment where she realizes that she's the brains of the operation or whatever, but it just feels tacked on. Yeah, and maybe you're right. Like, it's the writer's thing, and it's really the writer's thing because they overthought it. I almost would guarantee there's a version where it's like, she was working late at the Sentinel. Yeah. Right. She's there during the action and it kind of is the reveal of like who they are. It's like, you know, she's terrified. She thinks they're destroying the place that she's in. And then it's, oh, and it's you guys. Oh, and you've been like picking my brain this whole time. It's like, and my only assumption is like, there must've been something with Cameron as a schedule. I mean, yeah. it feels like that's the only, cause yeah, hiding at her house, it's a clever kind of patch on the situation, but it feels more like she wasn't available during the Sentinel days. Yeah, she should have been organically woven into the yeah. climax. Like you're saying, she should have been at the Sentinel. This all should have played out somehow within the structure of the climax. And it just feels tacked on at the end. But you know what's funny is I wouldn't cut it. Though. I mean, like, I know it wouldn't make sense to cut it. But like, even knowing how like awkward it is. I like the scene. So if given the choice, I wouldn't like get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. Like it's, and you need that payoff. And especially because earlier we get, you know, when they're asking her, well, what do you think's going to happen next? And she's like, well, they're definitely going to be dead within like two weeks. That is a good line. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so great. She's like, I was right. You know, as far as like everything going down and the timing, like she really, the criminology, she, she got it. I was going to say, and this is kind of cool because like it's become such a thankless job to be the character in the movie that is the one that has to explain things. You know, it's like that type where it's like, okay, we got this in most, you know, if it's science fiction, 
it's like we got this British guy to come, you know, older British guy, and he <laughs> it, he's gonna be so like charming and charismatic that like you're not gonna register that his whole role is just to like tell you what needs to happen. They handled it well here because that's really what Cameron Diaz is. She tells you everything. It's a clever inversion of that where she's saying what's going to happen before it's going to happen, but that's woven into the plot that they're actually taking their directions from. Right. Yeah. And and I actually kind of feel like that speaks to the whole movie that it's like, yeah, it's kind of a dumb action movie, but I don't know, more and more I am finding myself going like, I think it's way more clever than it's even knows maybe maybe it's more clever than it knows it is i'm finding choices like that i doubted that i'm suddenly like but now i kind of like it a lot and i think it's a much smarter movie than uh you'd think well and that might explain why it didn't do that well at the box office <laughs> are we ready to move on to the the question of the podcast i am going to start with you jennifer why do you think this failed i think it failed for couple of reasons one i mean as not being a green hornet fan it wasn't on my radar but i honestly don't remember in living i was living in la at the time i don't remember a lot of hype about and this it. was a this is filmed in california like it's not even dull it's not even doubled like that's part of why it was so expensive. Right. sorry to step on it but i just realized that yeah we didn't even talk about the fact that like this is they, they tried to make this like a very L.A. movie. They did. They shot it like in Century City and I think it was in Chinatown and stuff, too. Like it was definitely recognizable. But yeah, I just I, I don't really remember much hype about it. And the other thing is, I think just not really knowing in general, like who the Green Hornet is like, it, it's just really tough. I, and this was pre Avengers, right? Yeah. By a year. Yeah, just by a year. So maybe had it come out later, it might have had a better chance or if there could have been more another another avenue other than I don't know. I mean, there was the TV show and the radio, but that was so long ago. I don't know if there's some other way that it could have kind of been introduced where maybe there could have been more hype about it or maybe people just would have had like superhero fever because of the Avengers. So maybe it's a timing thing. But Personally, I actually will revisit this again. And a lot of it is because of Matt's education on the Green Hornet, because I I really, you know, didn't have any sort of reference point about this this character. Matt, why do you think this failed? I, I mean, again, I think we were at the point where superhero movies, they're they're really starting to like come out now, you know, now like you before it was like, OK, there's Batman and then there's something that's not quite Batman like spawn or whatever so it's a weird thing where it's like in a way the timing might have worked for it theoretically because people are just more aware of comic book movies but at the same time it's the green hornet it's, it's not connected to anything no one knew what it was like not just beyond the character you know was it just an action movie with some comedy is it a seth rogan comedy like i i was aware i mean obviously of the movie and i can't remember anything about how they promoted it nothing i can't remember a trailer i can't remember any kind of ads in comic books so i feel like no one knew what it was just plain and simple i agree with both of your points i think a, uh, the Green Hornet falls into the same category as the Phantom and the Shadow in that it's a radio serial character and they've never been able to crack that code where they made a radio serial character into a super successful 
big budget tentpole movie. I think what you were saying about like, what is this is also a huge factor. Like, is this a Seth Rogen comedy? Like, are we going to get pot jokes or are we <laughs> like doing like a serious superhero movie? I think that was confusing to people. But also one other thing that I'll bring up, and that is that like this seemed like a superhero parody. OK, and superhero parodies never do well. Superhero right. movies do. Right. But the parodies like superhero movie and I mean, even Kick-Ass, which did a little bit better, but that kind of walked the line a little bit more where it's yeah. a kind of parody, kind of not. I think that people just aren't into superhero parodies in this time. Yeah. Because weirdly, people take superheroes really seriously now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When it came to comics, like I, I like ones that balance comedy with, you know, superheroes. So my my favorite comic series of all time is a certain run of Justice League that people call it the comedy time, you know, the comedy era. And because there was jokes and yes, there was a lot more humor, but like it was it was a traditional superhero comic. And they were fighting supervillains and stuff. There was just a lot of dumb jokes thrown in. So I feel like almost that made this movie make sense to, to me personally, because I'm like, oh, no, it is. It's a superhero movie, but it will call out its own you know issues or call out issues with the genre. So it's self-referential, but not, you know, I, I, I felt like I was more comfortable with that concept that like you couldn't pe peg it down because of the, the comics, you know, that I like. And I think that, you know, you're just not the typical superhero movie viewer. Right. Oh, yeah. When we ask ourselves, who is this movie for? We know the answer. It's Matt Anderson. <laughs> and I, you have to understand, like, this is a revelation to me, though, too, even having seen this. But, like, I honestly, I think, like, in the last, like, three days, I do. I feel like this movie was made for me. Like, it's my autobiography now, the Green Hornet uh -huh. movie, because it's like it's like tailored right for me. It's like, do you want like action and you know a villain that's threatening but is also kind of funny? Do you want like lowbrow jokes with like you know pretty clever thought out like plot points? You know, it's like all these things that like are just <laughs> just tailored directly directly at me. Can I actually say like, were you guys at least surprised? Um, how kind of weirdly gruesome the villain's death was. I, I is the right word. Uh, yeah, I appreciated the dramatic irony of it. Honestly, as soon as he busted out that gun, I'm like, oh, that's going right between his own eyes at some point. But yeah, but it wasn't the gun. No, it was steak. It was steak. Well, yeah, like, and then he gets shot. I also appreciated one other thing that was, I, I thought like really took it to another level was when they were at the like construction site. That's a cool And they were going <laughs> to they're going to bury the 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 black beauty like they had like a grave yep. dug for it. Yeah. That's another weird tone moment in this movie where you're like that's a super gruesome death. And it like it, it's yeah. like it's it's goofy looking. Also this movie does the thing where it's like the DA like they botched the evidence and you're like and it's like he's going to get away and you think like oh okay so now he's going to be like the nemesis that he's got to find a way to take down Kato's like no and just kills him which yeah. is kind of <laughs> weird like you don't normally see movies do that where they're like yeah you know what he's just dead you know like 
the hero always pulls back. Yeah, especially superhero stuff. Like they don't, they don't. You want them kind of to go all in, but they don't because right. they're like, you know, they're a hero and they're like restrained in that way. But yeah, no, that was that was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, there's also like with the car just driving into like the meth lab. Edward Furlong's in this movie. We forgot to bring up Edward Furlong. Oh, I'm kicking myself. No, this is perfect actually because. I think they forgot Edward Furlong was in the movie. In the commentary <laughs> track, they're like, "Hey, that's yeah, he yeah, he came in one day. It's not a cameo, but like, are we supposed to like recognize? Is this supposed to be kind of like, hey, it's check it out? Well, like, not only that, but it's kind of messed up because Edward Furlong had very public drug problems. Yeah, that's true. At that time, I was reading um, in the trivia. I believe. I mean, I think he had gotten arrested like shortly after. He filmed this. He just like wander onto the meth set and just like he's looking to buy something. They're like, you want to be in a movie? You kind of look like Edward Furlong. (laughs) (laughs) When I saw him pop up, I kind of was and I love Edward Furlong and I'm always like rooting for him. And I saw him and I was like, oh, but this wasn't this was this is too like real right now. Yeah. Like this is like this is this this could happen. But he's pretty funny. It's funny. He was arrested a few hours after attending the premiere. Oh, great. So. Poor guy. Yeah. The fact that we forgot to talk about him shows it's not like it was like stunt casting or weird like, you know, when Tom Sizemore ends up in a movie. It was like anytime he would be in a movie, he's so troubled. But it's like and then it would rely on the stunt of like, let's let's see if he gets through this, you know, and like that's not what it's not like what they were doing here. It's like he just got a little role in a movie and great. He gets killed accidentally i mean yeah then yeah then they they blow it up like they they like send fire out of the black beauty and it's just yeah again just going back to circle full circle here is like this is not standard superhero stuff that happens no (laughs) it's just not it's like another level and i'm totally here for it all right guys well i'm gonna go rip the head off of an action figure and uh gas myself with a gas gun and sleep for 10 days and maybe i'll get my head tattooed with a a hair tattoo like nicholas cage That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 